About 15 buildings here have been abandoned for quite some time. They did a lot of searching for the kids here. Specifically for Jennifer and I believe Holly Ann. Growing up on Staten Island, Barbara and I had often heard the legend of Cropsey. You're supposed to have a hook and axe with a knife about this big. Cropsey was the escaped mental patient who lived in the tunnels beneath the old abandoned Willowbrook Mental Institution, who would come out late at night to snatch children off the streets. I have never, I would have never guessed there were the amount of weirdos living on Staten Island. There might be somebody on your block. There might be somebody you work with. You know, here's this guy going around picking off these kids. I can imagine how other parents, even if your kid's gone for an hour, I can imagine how they must feel. You know, that's probably the, one of the last things that you ever think about, that somebody would take your daughter. It seemed like everywhere I went, there were people out in the woods looking for that little girl. It's no question if we were going to find her. We definitely were going to find her. She thinks we're picking at dead children's bones. We just want closure on this, that's all. It's scary because we have a boogeyman living on Staten Island all those years. That image forced a lot of people to say, that is the killer. There's no reason for him to exist anywhere else, you know, other than jail. We had the same questions that you're asking me. Why did he do this? What set him off? It's sort of like putting a puzzle together. You know, he likes to be the center of attention, the keeper of the secrets. So I think it'd be great if you could speak for your own. What if we just do audio? Safety, I will not go on. Do you think they're all around us? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I think he's possessed. I really think that he is demonized and possessed. It doesn't... Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myth and misdeeds say about us as humans. Hey, I want to thank all of you for coming back, joining our show. We love to have you here. That's true. We think you're just the bee's knees, the cat's pajamas, what have you. We are not doing a story today about colloquialisms. <laughs> but we could. We could. We're, in fact, going to do something... A little different today. Yeah, something we're really excited about. We have a guest on our show. Which we haven't really done before. But if one were to invite a modern documentarian who focuses on folklore and urban legends onto their show, and you started down a list of people that you might like to have fill that position, I think one of the first names you'd come up with is... Joshua Zeman. That's true. That's what I was going to say. So Joshua Zeman is an independent film director and documentarian from New York. From Staten Island. That's right. And we first came across him way back in 2009. When we watched the documentary Cropsey. Right. And Cropsey is a local urban legend that's one that is very much centered in New York. Well, all up and down the eastern seaboard. 
So when you look at folklore as they talk about this, they really do point to New York State. And when the story is spread to other areas in the country, it usually comes from camps that people from New York have gone to and they're telling other kids the story. So you can see like a very direct transmission, almost patient zero kind of epidemic spreading. Most of the research is done by New York folklorists. So maybe they just want to think it's New York because they want it to be special. Everything comes from New York. Okay, fine. Everything comes from New York. Fine. Fine. Nothing Southern ever happened. So, In Cropsy, it's a great documentary. And if you haven't seen it... You should really, like, reconsider your life priorities and stop what you're doing right now. Because there's no way it's as important. And, like, really, what are you doing on episode 40-something of our show if you haven't seen this documentary? I'm sorry. I don't mean to criticize, but... No, we love you, so no, please stay. <laughs> no. You are the prettiest listeners of all the listeners, but come on, people. Go pause the show, get a beer, get some popcorn, snuggle up with somebody or something or whatever you gotta do, and go watch this documentary. It's on Netflix. It's on everywhere. And then, if you feel so inclined, you can do the follow-up and watch Killer Legends and just have a big old party of it. Big old urban legend, true crime party. Just saying. Yeah, Uh, because in this documentary, they start with this urban legend that they grew up with and talk about how it kind of became real. And the urban legend can take on a lot of different forms. It's usually just some maniac who kills people. It's kind of the (laughs) most generic, loose form. So folklorists have collected legends about this. I know that's shocking. Wait, did they debate? Um, no, you know, there's too much debate about this. Bullshit. I'm sure there Bullshit. is. Bullshit. I'm going to debate your de- no, not debating stance. It can take a lot of forms. It can be a man who lived with his family by a lake, and some kids from a nearby camp started a fire that killed one of their kids. And soon after, the father took an axe and went and attacked the campground and killed a bunch of kids. Did he give the campers 40 wax? I think he came out of the lake. Oh, like Jason Voorhees. Okay, got it. Got it. I'm on board. And that definitely fits in with that. This was a campfire story. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a guy in upstate New York that went crazy, mm-hmm. killed his whole family with an axe, and then turned his attention to the campers. And sometimes it's even a ghost story. Oh. Yeah, it was the ghost of a boy who died by hanging at a camp and was buried under his bunk. Why would they do that? It's a story. Okay, fine. Just a story. Just a story. Okay. And then they did make a movie kind of about it, just taking the general idea called The Burning. Okay. Where they had the bad guy was very Jason Voorhees kind of boogeyman that had hedge clippers. Oh my God, yuck. Yeah, that he would go and attack the campers. So this is like camp specific, but there's a little variation on that on Staten Island. True, as all good folklore and legends do, they're going to adapt to their environment. And we'll hear what Josh has to say about what he grew up with. Let's pretend that maybe you were stuck in traffic and you have a reasonable excuse for not having paused us, going to watch Cropsy, and coming back, as you were instructed. But we assume that as soon as you get home from your long commute, you'll go wipe off your pretty, pretty face, look in the mirror, and tell yourself that you're special and we love you, and go watch the doc. But in case you can't right now, we should probably kind of go over some of the things that are talked about. Sure. So, as I said, it starts with this legend. The documentary really focuses on how this legend kind of became reality. 
So in the 70s and 80s, there was sort of a, an epidemic where children were going missing on Staten Island. Yeah, it seems like it would happen every few years. Someone would go missing. Mm-hmm. A different little girl, usually. Usually. Well, one time, that MO changed. But everyone suspected, as we've come to talk about in the past, the outsider. The drifter. The guy that lives out in the woods. On a campsite near an abandoned mental institution. Where he used to work. And there are tunnels. And they happened to find, after many children have been missing, one of the girls' bodies buried right next to the drifter's campsite. So in a series of five disappearances in which he suspected, this is the one that sends him up against the justice system. They're finally able to get that conviction. And interestingly, he has to face off with the justice system 20 years later after the story of his involvement with these disappeared children has had time to grow and change and adapt and circulate among wider and wider audiences. And the question is, what was put on trial? Was it this man, this drifter, that definitely has a very disturbing background? Or was it the legend? Was it the original boogeyman legend or the legend that built up around him? And how can you ever separate the two? So please join us in our conversation with Joshua Zeman about his film Cropsy and his other films and other works that look into urban legends and true crime. And we also talk a lot about how urban legends have developed over the last 20, 30, 40, 100 years. They've taken on a life of their own. So today we have a really special guest and we're very excited about. Yes, this is Joshua Zeman and he is a filmmaker. He's done such films as Cropsy and Killer Legends are two of my favorite. So Josh, I know you grew up with the urban legend Cropsy. So why don't you tell us kind of what you heard? What was the story that you grew up with as a kid? Our story was that if you went to this abandoned mental institution in the middle of Staten Island, uh, that you might get snatched by this guy named Cropsy, who was an escaped mental patient who lived in the basement of the abandoned mental institutions, in the buildings and in the tunnels. Okay, so that's very specific to Staten Island then. Yeah, because there was like three kind of, there was like a mental institution, a sanitarium, and then like the all these buildings like in the middle of Staten Island, kind of like in the woods, basically. Right. There was a, like the farm, the poor farm was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They called yeah. it like the farm colony. That was like the poor farm. There was a sanitarium where they cured tuberculosis, you know, not cured, but like where people went to convalesce for tuberculosis. And then there was a mental institution. And they were like all in the middle of Staten Island. And everybody who like came from other places, if they had like a lot next to them in Brooklyn, like mm-hmm. only bad things happened there. You got like raped <laughs> or you got like beat up or like they found like a dead body. So when everybody moved to Staten Island and suddenly there's like all these woods, which is like a lot, and they already had like this anxiety. And then they looked inside and there were all these like decrepit old buildings that kids hung out in and had keg parties in, basically. Right. So it sets the stage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so kids are going to like naturally make up stories. The thing was, is that this one happened to be real. Right, because there really were people living in the basements, it seems like. Like, it seems like there are still people kind of hanging out down there. 
we know, went back and looked that there were like the classic mattress and the things you find when you're like, oh shit, this is not an abandoned house, which we've done. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We don't recommend that. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's like homeless people living there and you're like, oh my God, there's somebody living here. Well, and like I'm from a town of about 300 people out in the middle of the woods in North Louisiana. We were out walking around there one night out in the woods in the middle of nowhere and we came upon a house and we were like, let's go see what it is. And there was a mattress in there. So it's not even like a, oh, well, maybe they commute to go be homeless down in, you know, Times Square on their good days. It was like, no, they're out here, crazy people in the woods. This is totally Texas Chainsaw. Well, the problem is in Staten Island, at least, like they deinstitutionalized these institutions through Reagan, basically. Mm-hmm. But then they didn't have any follow up support. So basically, they just like let everybody out and like literally dropped them in Times Square. And that's how you had the homeless problem in New York City. Like that's how it kind of all started. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because that's when post Reagan is when there was the big cleanup of Times Square. That's right. Giuliani. Yeah. Our friend Giuliani. <laughs> and then they put all those homeless people on another bus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sent them to you guys. Awesome. Yay. Thanks. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like it really is the classic boogeyman urban legend. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's always like one guy. It's not like a community of people like Cropsey is a person mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, oh, it's always got to be one guy, right? Well, we're from... This area, Texas, Louisiana, and it's the family. It's the crazy family. Aha, uh-huh. yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. right. So the more like deep woods you go, the more that goes from like an escape mental patient, which is kind of like an urban thing, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And then you get out to like the crazy family, right? Of course, there's so many about the crazy family. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the other side of the boogeyman. Definitely. Our movie, our you know poster child would probably be Texas Chainsaw or something like that. But mm-hmm. like, really, my mom will be like, oh, you know, those crazy people that live back in the woods was what I grew up with. And I mean, they really were crazy people that live back in the woods. That, that, that's all like, that's all this devil, uh, Jersey Devil, crazy people. Oh, it's like yeah, a whole yeah. crazy people. Who, but there's always that like crazy people up on the mountain. You don't want to go there. You're going to get killed. Can I just God, say like... evil clowns have jumped the shark. I know. They're in South Carolina. They jumped the shark. Come on, guys. How Wait. many evil clown sightings are we going to get? This They're is doing the thing with the video cameras, like the the. Cal- you didn't hear about this? No, I haven't heard. <laughs> I have been in a bubble. I've been drawing. Yeah, in South Carolina, these kids are claiming that clowns came out of the woods, the woods again, and tried to you know lure them in and you know kill them and things. Of course they did. What else would evil clowns do? I thought you were talking about like another posse. Like in California when they went and did the thing where they like stared at all the surveillance cameras. I thought they were doing another one of those. Well, no one knows if this is real or if it's just a story kids are telling like this. My friend from Glasgow talked about evil clowns kidnapping kids. It was like one of his urban legends that he grew up with. Yeah, like if you watch Killer Legends, like they had a big one in Glasgow. Like the weird thing is, is like this is pre-Stephen King It. yeah. You know, so you're you're like, okay, well then if it's pre Stephen King it and Poltergeist, like then how did it really spread? And that's the whole thing. You had all these like different communities, like you have Pittsburgh and Glasgow pre internet. And you're like, okay, well how did this like scare this like, you know, urban panic basically go from here to here? That's what people can't figure out. It really is interesting. And like the Gacy thing, I think it's more in hindsight. I don't think we were totally. scared of Gacy because he was a clown. Of course. You know? You're totally right. I mean, he was terrifying in his own right. And then you find out he's a clown and you're like, that's doubly crazy. But I think it added to the legend. Oh, absolutely. Totally. Just built another chapter on it, right? These wonderful paintings. (laughs) Pogo. Oh, Pogo. Stop it. 
so, but you know, Gacy, mm-hmm. by the way, used to like, he used to like dress up in a lot of different things. Like it wasn't just Pogo. Like he would dress up as a cop and go to this park. I think it's called like Bug Park, where he would impersonate a cop and try and basically like chicken hawk these kids uh... with handcuffs. So like he just didn't do Pogo. He had a whole bunch of different faces. I feel like the the cop is more predatory. That identity. I feel like Pogo, like he actually I don't think he went and got kids while he was dressed as Pogo. Like in my when I was researching him, which has been a while. He never did. He yeah. Did. yeah, no, no, no. But the cop is definitely like the, the cruising outfit. Can you have a cruising outfit for abducting people? I don't know. Like a loose fitting cop shirt? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> three buttons done. Only totally. three. <laughs> so we you know, grew up with this urban legend, this boogeyman. How did this develop into the documentary you made? How did you have the idea? Were the ideas combined, you think, in the public consciousness before you set out to do it? Or were you like, people talk about him like they talk about Cropsey? I met a girl in a bar. So many great stories start this way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I, she was waitressing at the time. And she's like, oh, I'm from Staten Island. I was like, do you remember that story of Cropsy? And she's like, oh, my God, I totally do. Jennifer. And I was like, yep. And then we went out on a date. And I took her to the, the abandoned mental institution. And then. Such romantic. Thanks. And then. Um, and it was cool. Like, it was too, very interesting to go back there. There was like a abandoned playground. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, we have a visual way to tell this movie because these remnants of this story are are still here. The building, the playground, the trays, Mm -hmm. you know, and and they're really like, just like kick away some, some leaves and you'll see them, you know, metaphorically and dramatically. And then like three weeks later, the DA announced that he was re-indicting Andre Rand for um, one of the little girls. And then I was like, okay, it's on. Because now we have a trial that we can use as a beginning and middle and end to show, to weave this whole story. Right. It gave you some narrative structure. Exactly. So Willowbrook was the home for mentally disabled children on Mm -hmm. Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where the story starts. Right. right. And I was wondering, as I watched the documentary, which, by the way, I, we watched the documentary a few years ago, and I was, will still occasionally have nightmares about the Geraldo footage. Um, like, really, there are two specific images that you use in the film that haunt me. But I wondered, like, as a kid, were you privy to that? Or is that something you were sheltered from? Like, did you see that documentary during your time on Staten Island? Or you had no idea? No idea. And, and like, that was the whole thing. It's like doing the research, suddenly you see this video and you're like, oh, God, there's something going on here. And, you know, I think that just added to telling the story, you know, mm-hmm. or the reason for going back. But it's like I, I really compare it to like uh, the Holocaust and like an Auschwitz type of thing mm-hmm. where we have all these stories about the people in the surrounding community just kind of didn't know. Or they weren't right. free to it or they weren't uh, they were slightly oblivious or like, you know on purpose. And in some ways, I think a lot of that was going on as well. People were like, oh, the, on the bus to the mall, it went through Willowbrook and we got to see all the developmentally disabled people. Oh my God, that reminds me of the Ohio story, the um, Ohio Melonheads about the people that used to drive that way and they'd see all the, it, they shaved their heads when they were in the institution in Ohio. 
Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, right, right. and so they see him, and yeah. there, there's a story that they were, like, kidnapped. There are all these legends about him. Yeah, they all had, like, hydrocephalus is what it was. And there's no way they all did. What's that? Yeah. Uh, so it's like there's a problem in the drainage from the fluid of the brain, so oh. it makes their head bigger, like, significantly oh bigger. Yeah, so they actually did have kids with hydrocephalus there, and so that's okay. maybe where the legend started. But you know that there's urban legends about mental institutions like forever oh yeah as long as there have been and like poor farms especially like that was something like if you go back and do any reading from like 17 1800s the stuff that people wrote about the poor farms you're like is it true there's no way that's true in jails same thing with jails so uh, why do we have urban legends about mental institutions well, they're that outside. That's where we take the people that we don't understand, especially then, especially 100 years ago yeah. or even less than that. I mean, now, too. And that's where we put the people we don't understand for them to receive modern medical care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially 100 years ago, the things they were doing were ridiculous. And those people might be a little scary. They're the people that are not like us. And that automatically makes them the outsiders. There was a big combination of people who were either physically or mentally disabled and people who were physically deformed in some way or had been injured and had visible scarring deformity after that. And it was just not considered polite for them to be out in public. You have things like the ugly laws, which were a real thing. Oh, which, really? Yes. I didn't know that. Was that in New York? It was in Chicago. Chicago. was one of the places that spearheaded it, but there were definitely versions of it that came up in Chicago, New York, Boston. And so these people are just unseemly. And the reports you'll hear are like, there's an organ grinder with one arm who frightened a lady. So he's been carted away to this institution so that we don't have to look at him anymore. And so it was just not polite. Like, these are the these are the monsters. These are the outcasts. Get them out of our way. We don't want to look at that. We're going to mark the baby. That's interesting. I had no idea about that. Uh, this urban legend expert that we interview in both crop scene killer legends, this guy, Bill Ellis. and who's Yeah, like, I have a crush on him. Like, I have a brain crush on him. <laughs> a lot of people actually do. I do yeah. as well. <laughs> and brain urban legend crush. Because, yeah. like, he just ends up being creepy without really trying. He, like, mm -hmm. he, does, he, he has no idea. But he does. I don't, I don't know if he does. And that's what I love about him. But he said one of the reasons we create urban legends about mental institutions is because human beings have an innate fear in our society of becoming crazy. That oh. we might go crazy and therefore that's another reason why we institutionalize people who already are crazy because it reminds us of our vulnerability basically the idea of one day you're going to wake up and want to kill children right and it's like if they don't have any control over it how can we know that we have any kind of control over it you know exactly. it's like oh they're crazy they can't help it oh my god what if i can't help it one day i think there's a lot to be said about women too women mm -hmm. especially like the hysteria being shipped off your husband could have you committed you couldn't get out and i think that a lot of women my mom's age kind of have that fear of like you don't let it show when you're upset you know you keep your shit together and you stay in line because you don't want that to happen to you they can put you there whether you're crazy or not and then there's nothing you can do yeah, yellow no wallpaper oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all very prevalent in the South, too. All of this. The yeah. polite society, the you know, having to keep yourself in check. Mental institutions are going to be scary no matter what you do because it's not somewhere that you go and access on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not somewhere you can just walk in. Right. The interesting thing in our story was that Andre Rand, the boogeyman, his mother was in a mental institution. I and did find so that very interesting, yes. And so he worked in a mental institution to like, I don't know why exactly he did, but like he was just comfortable there. Maybe because he was with people who 
you know, looked up to him or he could control theoretically because he was a pedophile, but I'm not quite sure that's what it really was about. I think that came secondary. I don't, I don't know. What information did you find out about his prior offense that he was actually in prison for? That was kind of crazy. So there's a first weird story is he's busted in a car with a woman who's his wife and she's like eight months pregnant and there's a kid in the backseat and he, apparently like he has his pants down. And the woman took all the responsibility or he blamed the woman and I couldn't quite tell like what that story was because you had an eight month pregnant woman in the car. So I don't really, you know, that throws the whole thing off. And then he took a busload of kids to Newark Airport and then to Willowbrook. And when we heard it was in Willowbrook at night, we like were all like, oh, that's crazy. But he got permission slips from all the kids' parents. Huh. And he had a bus. Like, huh. this is very well, you know, like, I don't know if he's living some weird, like, Henry Darger style thing there. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, has some kind of, like, fascination that maybe once in a while goes towards actual, like, sex or touching or whatever. I'm not even quite sure. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. By the way, the guy that you got to do the interview about the bus is my favorite interview maybe ever. <laughs> oh, he makes me so happy. Like. Because he's wearing a Fat Albert t-shirt. Yes, I loved it. <laughs> you can't well, buy that. So l let's talk about Andre Rand. You know, this is the guy that comes out in the documentary as the personification of Cropsey. Mm -hmm. And he was perfectly cast. Like if you were trying to find somebody to play crazy especially in the, like, the 87 series of photos, like the ones from yeah. Jennifer's trial. Mm -hmm. It was the he, drooling. It was the drooling. Oh, my God. So, this, you know, there's been a lot of, like, diagnosis. People email me. They Facebook me. They're like, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. Here's what I think he has, you know, because mm -hmm. this guy never got properly diagnosed, like, the first time he was ever arrested for this crazy shit. And so the question is, is he, when he gets arrested and he's in the middle of, like, full-on New York City 1980s interrogation about stealing a kid in Staten Island. You must know what that interrogation looks like. Yeah. You know? And they've got him. They're like, what do you do with the kids? They show him the video. They show him Geraldo's video. And then suddenly he goes into a catatonic state. And the question is, is the catatonic state real? Or is he repeating behavior that he's seen while working at a mental institution and knows this is the thing to do to get out of a hardcore New York City interrogation about whether or not you've kidnapped a kid? Well, I love that people are like, he's mentally incompetent. If you Google him, that's the first thing it says right after his name. Like, he is mentally incompetent. He's mentally deficient. He's not. And I'm like, come on. I think he's really smart. And maybe it's just me. He's crazy, but he's smart. He is smart. Like, he, you know, his letters are smart. You know, he's not stupid. But I mean, like, the handwriting is crazy to me, too. That tiny little handwriting. He was a sign painter. Okay. He was that a sign painter. So if you look at all the letters, they have this weird, like, everything's, like, <laughs> weirdly outlined in sections. Like, they're all signs, which makes the Proverbs work really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know what people have thought that he had. What have people tweeted and emailed you about? Well, the, the most relevant thing is someone's, like, he's got full-on catatonic psychosis brought on by some emotional child trigger. And they're, like, it is just like you see it in the movies. Where, like, some trigger hits you back to something that you did horrible, some horrible time. You do go catatonic for, mm -hmm. like, two days. And you wake up and it's like a, it's like a crazy-ass migraine. I don't know if it's real or not. If I worked in that institution for two years, I would have PTSD. Like, totally. I mean, it, it is. It's like Auschwitz. It's horrible. It's horrifying. No, it definitely is. 
60 mentally disabled kids running around, half of them naked. They take off all their clothes all the time because they just don't like things around them, mm-hmm. you know? And someone told me a story like if a rubber band fell in the middle of the floor, like five kids would like jump on the rubber band and they'd fight each other for the rubber band, but there's no cognizance of like, I'm hurting you. They wouldn't stop. You and know? how do you get in the middle of that to break it up? Who's there to break it up? Who's there? One to... woman, one woman, yeah. 60 people. You know what I'm saying? But the weird it's thing bedlam. Was, it is. That's what crazy. That's what crazy is. That's what really crazy is. Well, that word comes from a English insane asylum. Yeah, right. true. Okay, fine. Right. I'm being redundant. Okay, <laughs> I used the word to define itself. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. So I mean, we have this guy who is either completely insane well he's there's some insanity there's something going yeah, it's on totally crazy in some respects i just don't know to what extent yeah well if you, here devil's advocate if he wasn't crazy before and yeah. he worked at willowbrook for two years which would do bad things to you and then was wrongfully imprisoned twice it would make you crazy mm-hmm. i can see that and so i mean after he left the institution he kind of just became this drifter, just picking up odd jobs, right? Yeah, I mean, he was one of the local guys who, in, in the real sense of a drifter, like they would see him in Sears. And people would talk about seeing him because all the kids worked as the cashiers mm-hmm. in all the places, you know? And they'd be like, yeah, Andre Rand just walked by, you know, or, or was in here. And, but he would always do something weird, like he wanted a cup of tea. He didn't want a cup of coffee, he wanted a cup of tea. So he had these like weird little idiosyncrasies that marked him even further as an outsider, right? He totally. wasn't going to conform. Totally. It wasn't like batshit crazy. Like he was just having a cup of tea, but he's a homeless guy. And that's weird. Especially in Staten Island, <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> Can I have a, a spot of tea, please? Right. I'll give you a slice of pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a diner in New York with my friend from Glasgow and he ordered tea and the waitress looked at him like he was like stupid and he has the thickest brog you've ever heard. And I'm like... You know he's not from here. Stop looking at him like he's weird. Just get him a cup of tea. So how was he, I mean, we kind of know from the story, but how was he initially implicated in this case, in the initial missing child? In the initial missing child? Well, I mean, it looks like... I should say the first one he's arrested for. You're right there. Chronologically, it's the end. Right, that's what happens. Like, finally gets, like, actually arrested for something. There's all these, like, whispers that he's been, like, suspected before and the cops could never catch him. Like, the 1970s cops could never catch him. And, like, they, you know, broke into his car and did everything, you know, (laughs) hung him over a ledge, you know, everything you can expect these cops would do. And he wouldn't break, you know. And so, finally, after all these years of, like, these kids disappearing, but they never really actually made the connections either. But finally, it dawns on them after, like, you know, five kids. And then it's Jennifer Schweiger. And, you know, she had Down syndrome. So her parents were very vigil. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were able to, like, very quickly trace what happened to her. But the only evidence really was 11 Staten Islanders kind of pointing the finger at him in very, like, Boo Radley style, saying... Oh, my God, I- it is Boo Radley. <laughs> I hadn't put that together. But, yeah, he totally is. Like, he could play him in a movie. Well, so there were those whispers that maybe it was him that was abducting the children. Was he ever conflated with the urban legend of Cropsey kind of prior, like in the 70s yeah. and 80s? No, never, never. Yeah, and this is the thing we talk about or I talked about with you guys before, which is like urban legends just weren't around then like that. People you know, didn't they were, recognize them as such, I guess. No, they were, they were being created. I mean, you're not going to have like people talking about urban legends like we are now in the middle of like a satanic panic epidemic. 
True. They had no idea. It was just this, the perfect. I mean, you had like these Staten Islanders running through the woods looking for a lost little girl and then finding the tunnels of the abandoned mental institution that happened to have some kind of like pentagrams on the outside from kids hanging out. Like they're freaked out. Yeah, I do love how you draw in that idea of the satanic panic into the documentary. I loved those interviews too. Actually, the nun's legs were also a really good interview. <laughs> like that was another one that I really approved of. But yeah, man, those letters, that was crazy from the the vision-having nun. That's a credible mm. source. Yeah. <laughs> from Bayshore, Queens. Oh, the nun from Queens had visions. <laughs> exactly. And, and asked for her to pay for le- amulets that she would like, you know, send. But yeah, I mean, it's a, like a letter found on the windshield under the windshield wiper of everybody's car in the neighborhood. That was like the, the internet back then. That was the internet. That was like a chain letter almost. It was a chain letter. Very good. It was a chain letter. And it's like, pass this on if you want to buy the amulet. And by the way, Jennifer was killed by witches in a black mass. Yeah, at this time, chain letters were the big way of transmitting urban sure. legends. Yeah, but, you know, on the hood of everybody's car. But, but there really was a nun who really did have the visions, as far as you know. Like, you feel like you found... Oh, I know who she is. Her name okay, is Veronica cool. Lucan. She had the visions. Okay, so Veronica Lucan, since you bring it up, appears in Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil. Have you guys read that book? I have not read that book. Go ahead and read that. Definitely enjoy and read that book. And so that one is about Son of Sam. We mentioned it in our documentary because there's like this cult operating around the same time that was apparently stealing kids. And so while there was a lot of satanic panic about this story, in this story, Buried is one of the, I don't want to say most real because it's still not real, but it is real, kind of devil worshiping stories of the 1970s. Right. Is the Church of the Process. Yes, yeah. exactly. I know yeah. a moderate amount about Son of Sam. I've not dove into that. I know the dog told him to kill people. Well, you and... need to know about the Church of the Process. I, yeah, I, I need to. You're right. <laughs> I just got done listening to a big thing about the West Memphis Three. Also mm-hmm. crazy satanic panic case. Yeah. Not sure what I think about that one. Oh, well, the reason I make documentaries is because of Paradise Lost. Yeah. I listened to like a three-part episode on a podcast about it, and I'm like... I have no idea what to make of this. No. Like every bit of evidence they present, I'm like, ah, it just doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. Well, I mean, the preschool stuff in those trials, I mean, that, was, com- preschool. that was completely bullshit. Yeah. I mean, that was a hundred percent made up. Hey, they had ideas of tunnels just like this under tunnels. the preschools. Except that they, could go they weren't and- there. Oh yeah, they weren't there. <laughs> Yeah, there were no real tunnels. There were not real tunnels. Let's be clear. You don't want to oversell it here. Yeah, but they thought they were. And yeah. they thought they were taking the children down there. One of the children who testified also identified Chuck Norris as one of his abductors. Right. It's possible. I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm no, just no, saying no. it could I heard be. it from a friend of mine. From a friend of a friend. So Rand was initially arrested for this abduction, kidnapping, murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, this girl. And then after that, they started trying to connect him to all of the other ones. He was re- arrested on suspicion of kidnapping. I don't think they'd found the body at the time of his arrest, correct? Uh, that's correct. It was kidnapping. Then they did find the body, and everybody's wondering whether or not the searchers had reburied the body. I wondered if you were, like, if you put any stock in that. Because, like, when that guy says it, I was like, I don't know. I can kind of see it. Like, and it's kind of conspiracy theory. It's kind of fringy, but I don't know. Because it's like so Staten Island 1980s. Yeah. You know, it's like we found the body and then we buried it next to the campsite because we were going to finally put that fucker in jail. Yeah, right. it was very conveniently like right by it. 
Yeah, but I, you know, I know the I know the woman who was there, and I just don't believe that takes a lot of conspiracy. You know, it takes. I don't think she would have been part of it. I think somebody could have done it and sent her to find it, and her not known. But I can't imagine her being like, "Oh, we're gonna get him." Like two firemen. Yeah, like two firemen. Exactly. I love firemen. Don't get me wrong, but two firemen in the 1980s in Staten Island. You can't completely dismiss it. You just can't. Right. Uh, well, there was like some forensic evidence, apparently, like when, they, when bodies are found, you know, the, the lividity. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some issue with the lividity. But that's not ever been brought up in like any kind of real credible kind of thing or. It, yeah, nothing. Nobody would go there. Yeah. It's I mean, how could you prove it anyway? You know, you, you can't. Yeah. Someone would have to like come out of the woodworks and admit it, <laughs> which is never going to happen. By the way, I reburied that body. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Just, just letting you know, guys. Uh, you guys are cool with that, right? They're probably like, yeah, we're fine. <laughs> yeah, no exactly. problem. Go away. Go away quickly. Go away quickly and don't tell anyone else ever. Well, okay. So if you watch the documentary, right, when we get to the trial stage and we're interviewing all the witnesses, all the witnesses sound the exact same when they retell their story to us. And you can tell they've all been coached by the DA because they all use these like end phrases that are all they all say, I just did what I had to do, you know, and they oh, all God. use this weird end phrase. And you're like, and the guy might have been guilty or not, you know, but the fact is these, these witnesses have been wicked coached. One of them is like, we're like, did you see anything? She's like, no, I heard everything. No, I, I didn't see anything. You look like a guy who could have done it. Like That was her come out line from being on the stand. That's incredible. (laughs) I was like, you were coached. And of course, 20 years later, she's remembering this. Exactly, right. One of my favorites is one of the guys you're talking to is like, and you know, there was the description of the suspect. The description was he was a guy who looked like Andre Rand. And I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) That's so amazing. The description was he was a guy that looked like Andre Rand. (laughs) Totally true. Yeah, the legal system, you know. Again, I, I will say that I think he did something. I don't know exactly what he did. I don't know if he did everything that he was charged with. But, you know, it's like you've got two sides of that story. You know, it's almost like 50-50. He did something in 50-50. I don't know exactly what he did. Yeah, I yeah, kind of feel I, that way, too. Like, I don't I don't think he was a friendly neighborhood kook. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wonder is, you know, do you think they're even, they had that presumption of innocence at all? No, because any guy who lives in the woods, there's no presumption of innocence. Right. He automatically gets tagged with that, like, outsider. If you lived in the woods, you would, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. It's totally true. What about his friend that looked like Christopher Walken? Oh, that guy. Yeah. I love that guy, too. Was he ruffled by the interview at all? Or was he just, like, as chill as he seemed? So we thought it could have been him. Yeah. Right? So, and he's a great guy. Bob. He's a great guy. But meeting him, we thought it could have been him. We go to his house. We knock on his door. No calls or anything like beforehand. Just knock on his door. And he's like, sure, come on in. Let me go tell my mom where we're going. I'm like, okay. And he like disappears down a door. You know, and it's, and it's you know, he's like 45 years old. He's like, let me go tell my, my mom where I'm going. And it's just, it, it got a little weird. And I was like, and then he came and sat like in the middle of the seat of the minivan. And then it was still weird. And then he started talking. And the minute he started talking, I was like, this guy's unbelievable. He like totally has this most amazing perspective on the whole scenario. Uh-huh. And he was a suspect. But he believed all the stories in a way too. He's like, oh yeah, there were tunnels down there. You know? We used to hang out in the tunnels. We used to drag race. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? 
How? Not in the tunnels, but he was oh. okay. That just ruined my vision. I was like, maybe he meant with wheelchairs. Was my immediate thought. I just imagine him going uh, like it's like psycho, like Norman Bates going to tell his mother. Oh God! One thing I didn't put in the movie. So like there are eleven kids being brought from like one end to the campus to the other. And so they had these tunnels and they had these tunnels because they didn't want to like shovel snow, you know, uh-huh. plus you had to keep these kids together who would just like run all crazy. Hurting cats. Yeah. yeah. And so they had these tunnels and at corners, like when the tunnel made a right or a left, there was like a little sign that said, did you count the children? Like on the corner when like a kid could like wander away. When all the searchers saw these signs, you know, all those like kind of figurines and those characters that you see, you know, painted on the walls of the mental institution during uh-huh. all those footage. That's all there in the in part of the tunnels and asking all the, the counselors, did you count the children? And people just got so freaked out about that line. Freaks me out. It's like, have you checked the children? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Another great boogeyman story. Yeah. Do you feel that all of these missing children are connected do you think they are all connected to rand or just happenstance so there's like only one question you can ask at that point did the children stop disappearing when andre Rand went to jail right that's a good question and then one of them ty she Mm -hmm. disappeared like right after he got out of jail yeah like 12 days yeah yeah yeah. it's just coincidence but it is suspicious in some ways with crime right where there's smoke there's fire and the question just is like to what extent you know, did, did, did they really nail him on what he did? You know, I don't know if Hank, you know, that guy Hank. Hank, Hank before, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that was really connected. I'm not quite sure. You know, but it, it's weird. I mean, the kid's sitting there behind, you know, the newscaster. He lives around the corner from Andre Wren. He's on the corner when Holly Ann disappears. Like, you, you know, they were last seen together. So you got to ask yourself, like, what's going on? You know, Andre Ram was the last person seen with Holly and Andre Ram was the last person seen with Hank Caforio, although they were like at a diner at like 2 a.m. So maybe he met somebody else along the way or whatever. Uh-huh. And that's what Hank, it's like he doesn't fit the MO because he's an older guy. But then also he does fit some of the MO that he's has a lower IQ, uh, kind of fits in that respect. But do you think you brought up, was he yeah. involved? I had a weird, like, I would not put this forward as a theory. We weren't just, like, sitting around talking. But, like, I wondered if he was involved and then got, like, weird about it. And so he was killed. Could be. You know, that's weird that he's back there, like, checking on mom or, you know, with the reporters or whatever. Just that he would be that close to one of the disappearances. Well, I think he was just, like, a kid in the neighborhood. It was like, look, look, there's a camera here. Yeah. But at the same time. He was palling around with him. And, you know, the thing is, is that Andre Rand palled around with a lot of people who returned to the mental institution after it closed because that was the only life that they knew. Was Hank ever in Willowbrook? He wasn't, but he was mentally disabled. So right. it's, it's like, you know, he's going to gravitate towards people who are going to understand him. He understands. Or maybe there's just like not a lot of social stress. And so, and I'm sure Rand was very easy to talk to. So also everybody's a sexual being. You know, he was 21, you know, and just because he's mentally disabled doesn't mean he's not a sexual being. And so, you know, you just have to ask yourself what kind of scenario was going to happen in that situation. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I do think Hank is interesting. There's something about him that really fascinates me. It's a very strange story. Very strange. And, And who knows what it is. There's been a lot of other stories that have come up around Hank that lead me to believe that, that I don't exactly know what happened. 
Yeah, but we mentioned that he was retried over 20 years later for one of the cases. Or he wasn't retried, I guess he was tried mm-hmm. for one of the other missing cases. And we talked about kind of just how, you know, all of the witnesses were obviously coached <laughs> and kind of knew what to say and their memories were all perfect, which is excellent because I can't remember yesterday. Do you feel like in the second case that the legend, the idea of the boogeyman, the guy that comes out from the insane asylum and snatches these children away, this like idea of Cropsy, played a big part of that? Yeah, it was the boogeyman on trial. Well, that's a good question. I don't think the boogeyman was on trial. I think the pedophile was on trial. You know, the, more the Boo Radley was on trial. Right, the idea of it. Yeah, the idea that somebody's coming in and like corrupting your children or stealing your children, you know, the Pied Piper or something like that. It's just a little bit more like string them up Frankenstein style rather than like, is this the boogeyman? You know, he wasn't like a super duper serial. Well, I guess he was. They also called him crazy, crazy like a fox. There were a lot of different variations, but like, I think it was just like in a community like that and in any community, anytime children are threatened, people really circle the wagons. You know, they find scapegoats. They're after blood. And I read something a while back for research in one of our episodes where it talked about the different generational boogeyman. And it said, like, in the 40s and 50s, it was like juvenile delinquents. And then it was sex maniacs for a while were, like, the scary things. And then after that kind of came this, like, child predator. You know, and that's kind of where we are now. That's still where we're hung up. You know, well, we kind of got terrorists. We kind of moved on to terrorist a little bit, but in our own backyard, we're going to worry most about the the sex pervert child molester. I, I think that he was definitely subject to that. Like it is, it's one of those just huge fears, and it's encouraged and reinforced by media. I think. Mm-hmm. Except it's clowns. Oh, clowns. you're right. There, there are going to be rumors that he used to dress as a clown somewhere. <laughs> Now it is clowns. Yeah, my so. kid came out and told me the other day, like, Mom, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like... He told me that, too. He was like... I was like, what? He's like, I finally know. I was like, what? You're five. What? And he's like, I want to be a clown. And I was like, no, you don't. You just pull him aside. Listen, clowns, you know, they just... They have it hard right now. I was like, it's not the day for clowns. No, I... My actual response, what I actually said was, do you want to be the Joker for Halloween? <laughs> Because I can make you a sick costume. I think that what you bring up is like, no, it was the child molester on trial. It was the pervert on trial. Is really interesting because I think that may be something like you're talking about where you're like, you know, they're not going to realize it's folklore in the middle of the satanic panic. I feel like there is kind of that generation of folklore around sex offenders, child molesters right now. Like, I feel like that's something we're going to look back in 20, 30 years and be like, Oh, look, there are all these legends about them. They're the boogeyman lurking around the corner. Right. And I wondered if you got that sense talking to people, like if it felt like you're watching new folklore happen. Well, I was watching new folklore happen with the kids. You know, we would go like four years ago. I went back just to see what it was like on a Halloween night at the mental institution. When we were young, he was never like, yes, we called them Cropsy, but it was never like it was Cropsy. It was just more underground. It was never like full-blown, here's the story, because I saw it on blank. Mm-hmm. And now, when we went back, kids were like, oh, yeah. And they like had taken our story, they had added on, and they had added their own thing on top of that. Like It was crazy to see how the urban legend actually 
morphed and and we like added that and i'm not saying like you know to your own horn i'm just saying it's just like that's crazy how urban legends work what did they added like what significant component well, that's good well first of all i will say so we're in you know me my cameraman sound guy and barb we're in the middle of this abandoned mental institution we're like running around talking about things freaking ourselves out other people freaking us out and we run into like four kids and they're mm-hmm. dressed in camouflage they're like 13 and they're all wearing gas masks and we're like what are you guys doing here and they're like what are you guys doing here and we're like well we're making a documentary and the kid lifts up a camera he's 13 he's like we're doing the same thing <laughs> that's <laughs> I amazing like, i was like okay cool man bites dog sort of way and then my dp asks, he's like why do you have a gas mask on and the kid's like Duh, asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> He's been watching Ghost Adventures. <laughs> I, I know. My DP, of course, looks at me like, uh, we, we need to talk about asbestos. <laughs> we finish the day here. It's just an urban legend, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe a word he says. <laughs> I thought it was great that in the little clip you have from running into people in the movie, you know, before the movie had come out, they didn't know the story. Like, the kids did not know the story of Rand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it was weird. There was like a generation there, like, you know, after us, we're like, those kids didn't know. And we were like, oh, haven't you heard about the urban legend of this killer? And they're like, <gasps> you know, you're out there in the middle of the woods and you meet us. <laughs> and, and we're the like, we're to run into because you're like, we got stories. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, just sit over next to me here, you know, <laughs> and then we just talk about it. They, they bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. It was good. But it was real. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, yeah. they kind of had a little, when girls like my mom told me about it. Yeah. Yeah. And she goes, wasn't she slow in the movie? I'm like, oh, honey, your mom's going to be mad at you. Don't say that. (laughs) Exactly. Wasn't she slow? That's what mom said. But it is great to see that evolution, you know, from when before the movie came out, they didn't know what you were talking about. Not really. But then now I'm sure everyone on Staten Island has seen the movie. Yeah. (laughs) And now it's it's in the... I guess it's in the kind of general idea of the legend. It's got to be tied together. There was a uh, like a haunted house last year in New York, and they did Cropsy. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, that's cool, guys. But why don't you call me? No, they used my pictures from my website. Aww. And I was like, guys, come on now, all right? You know, like I'll feed you this. I'm happy to like help with the story you know and 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 help add what i know into the urban legend for the good of urban legend mankind <laughs> yes yeah, good that's all good you know but don't steal my photos <laughs> but it did become you know it was like a new york city urban legend haunted house and they had cropsy there so it, it, it enters in some of the ideas and some of the connections we make are are interesting and it's, it's just like your story you take this idea this idea of the boogeyman or this idea of the satanic panic, all these other things. And really, if you dig hard enough, you find out that these ideas of the urban legends, why they're just they're general ideas, they're general fear as humans. Mm-hmm. But you can usually find some real life occurrence that fits in fairly decently with it. And we do, we go off. Like, we'll start with an urban legend and end up in a really weird place. Like, we did an episode recently where we talked about, like, the Hawaiian night marchers. And we ended up like talking about cultural appropriation. But again, it fits in with the idea of the urban legend. It's like once you put it out there, people are going to take it and they're going to, just like any folklore, they're going to change it and make it their own. And it's going to become. It's because we work in a living medium, like because we're recording culture and world tradition and storytelling. What do you do? (laughs) Exactly. Like you bought that cow. 
Which in one way, it's it's great. I love that part of it, that you can just see this moving oral tradition. Right, but there's nothing you can do about it. Like, you live in a, you know, your medium is that of appropriation and, and adding on to the story. So, like, you can't be mad at that. But you bring up that, that idea of this, these legends, these stories, and them just coming out. And it really has become more popular in the age of social media and the internet, of course. Digital campfire. Yes, absolutely. We were kind of talking about that idea today. We were talking about, like, has the urban legend gotten more footing? And I think that, yes, it has, because folklore is being studied more widely, like, in an academic sense and with that urban legends. But also, I feel like since we get to filter everything we take in, and as you point out in the Cropsey Dot, we get to decide what's true. We get to listen to the urban legend and decide if it's true. And so if we decide it's true, we can just incorporate it into our already highly specified worldview that we're following on Twitter, following on Facebook, or like it's this very subjective reality. But we're also a culture of appropriation these days. You know, everything is a remix. The idea that's like, you know, like hip hop songs remix and that's cool. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I love that hook. I love that jam or retweeting. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's okay to keep telling the same story over and over with your little 140 character comment. So we live in that culture. That culture is accepted. It's, it's, it's actually, it's encouraged, right? Retweet this. So that's the world we live in. And so to have something appropriated and remixed is great. People like your message and then they're redoing it more and that's cool. Or you've told a good scary story. Congratulations. And that's the general idea behind folklore. And it originally was orally, and then you had like chain letters, and now it's now it's the internet. Mm-hmm. So, are we witnessing digital folklore? Yeah, we are. The best example of that, and there's been so much news about this recently, and we've talked about it before on the show, is you know Slenderman. Yeah, a completely mm-hmm. fictional creation. I don't think that the guy who created Slenderman ever fully intended for people to believe it was real. You know, like he created it in a contest to generate fiction, alter photos, and then it really did. People chose to believe it was real. But what I liked about that was, and you said it yourself, it's like the friend of a friend. We no longer have that on the internet per se, although we do have Facebook where you can easily do a friend of a friend. But that new level of digital storytelling or urban legends used photos, altered photos as its proof. So that became friend of a friend. Oh, I have mm-hmm. this photo that shows you something. And he used two photos to prove his point. And it's just interesting to me how in the digital age, the altered photo has become the new level of curated. Well, it's, it's the credibility that the yes. friend of a friend would give you. Right. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. well, my mom's aunt said this. Cite your sources. Yes. And here's, yeah. your, here's your citation. Look at this. Guys, here's the photo. I do like the fact that you guys say, cite your sources. <laughs> I tell my five-year-old that. Like, when he's telling me, like, I heard or whatever, I'm like, cite your sources. Where did you hear that? I love the idea. And the creepypasta, I mean, that's just so frequently they take old urban legends and just retell them, but also create new things, too. But with the same general ideas, you know, like the boogeyman ideas, always there. You have, like, Slenderman, Jeff the Killer, two big creepypastas that have developed their own folklore. And most folklorists do consider them folklore mm-hmm. because of how they've developed over time with so many people spreading it again digital campfire right i think that's like one of my new favorite phrases 
I'll take your uh, cite your sources. You can have my digital camera. Okay, Perfect. <laughs> Let's do it. That's a good exchange. I Trade like you. Uh, by the way, I have a new show. Oh, well, tell us. What is it? November 4th, I think it is, with my partner, Rachel Mills, who I did um, Killer Legends with. Uh, we just did a show for A&E about the Long Island serial killer. Oh, and my God. So we spent a year researching this case, and then we work with these web sleuths who believe that this case is connected to, to some other sex worker murders up and down the East Coast and beyond. And it, it's interesting. It's an eight-part series for A&E, and we did it with Alex Gibney, Oscar-winning director. It's interesting because we look at like kind of dispelling the legends behind serial killers to find like the very tragic, tragic truth of what those situations are always like. I am incredibly fascinated with Long Island serial killer. It's one I have not tackled because I find it heart wrenching. Like I, I just I have a hard time with it because there is so much writing by the women and about the women and their mm-hmm. families are so visible that it's. They are not faceless at all when you start looking into it. Those women were all, a lot of them, almost all of them actually, um, at least the victims that we know about, were all escorts on Backpage and Craigslist. Mm. And so those Backpage and Craigslist have like changed the face of sex work in the digital age. Like literally the world's oldest profession has changed. Right. And it's a different demographic of people. Totally. And that to me, just the idea that the world's oldest profession is completely different because of this. You know, in, in everything, like, there's no drive up, get in the car, like, it doesn't happen like that. And you would think in some ways the internet would make it more safe, but actually it creates another level of anonymity. And as a result, it becomes infinitely more dangerous. Right, because you can demand that they send you all their information up front, but they don't have to send you anything that's real. You know, like, there's no way to verify. Nobody can write down the license plate. Nobody can tell you that it was a gray Camry or whatever if you go missing after a certain call. It's true, true. yeah. Like, they say, like, for the women, it's almost like the deal's already done before you get into the car. In this case, it's before you walk into the door of the hotel room. Mm -hmm. the The deal's done. So there isn't that, like, choice that the sex worker has to, like, say yes or no at the car window. Yeah. And so as a result, it becomes a very, it's, again, it's worse. It takes out a level of their, like, spidey sense. Right. And you've already invested your time in getting to wherever you're going, and this is what you have to do tonight. And if you don't do this, you're out 500, 1,000 bucks, and you ought to just go with it. Because really, aren't they all a little creepy? And then you're murdered. Most of the women abducted from hotels or last seen at hotels, or were they making house calls? We, we don't really know mm-hmm. uh, what it was, but probably definitely some car dates they have. Car dates, hotels, house call, probably not. Like the guy wouldn't say, come to my house in case she told somebody she was going to some house. Mm-hmm. And then his address would be out there. Someone would know. So it's probably car dates and hotel rooms. Yeah. So it is in, did you say eight part or six part? Eight part. Eight part series. Should be Very there. exciting. Yeah. Do you Very know the exciting. title? Uh, the Killing Seasons. It's definitely a departure from urban legends. It's definitely more true crime now that there's so much true crime talk out there. But like it is, it's true crime, it's advocacy, you know, it's a little horror. It's all those things. I don't think it's that far removed from urban legends. Yeah. I, I think that true crime and urban legends kind of go hand in hand. Maybe that's just because I have such an interest in both of them. But if you look at things like, okay, so Law and Order, 
you know, its tagline is ripped from the headlines. But a lot of times it's not. A lot of times they're urban legends. Like they did a kidney theft episode or whatever. And so people kind of collapse the ideas and have been for at least 20 years where it's like, oh, I heard this happened or supposedly they. Well, there are plenty of times that we're researching urban legends and we find out they do stem originally, maybe, (laughs) from these real life murders. Yeah, yeah, and maybe not what the eventual findings were proven in court, but like the the word on the street about investigations. Well, like the ones I'm thinking of is like the hook. Yeah. You have the Texarkana killer, which y'all talked about. Yep. Oh, y'all also talked about the uh, the babysitter on Killer Legends. That's mm-hmm. another one. Two that started out maybe as real stories and developed into legends. We couldn't find anything on babysitters. That was the only thing we could find. The one in Colombia. Yeah, which is really a. Uh, a race issue. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. It really is. And, and like, it doesn't fit in completely, but just everyone says that that's where it stems from. Really? I have a feeling you may have been scooped again. <laughs> I think they may be citing you. Because, listen, I'll be honest. Like, we just looked, we're like, okay, are there any stories with girls getting killed? And we couldn't find any, like... There was so few, and that was what was so interesting. Be like, how did these girls become this like victim du jour when like it doesn't really happen? One of the things that we read from a folklorist, I think it was Dundee's, because it had to do with sex. And usually, if it has to do with sex and gender, it's Alan Dundee's that's written it. Uh, <laughs> but he says that it's girls trying on the maternal role, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, like and failing. The, and failing, failing, and you know, being. Yeah sexualized that's the cautionary tale that's the cautionary tale you you shouldn't be a babysitter because you're like going out in the workforce and you're leaving the kids theoretically and like because typically like there's a boy over they're on the phone they're like ignoring their feminine matronly duties and therefore see what happens your kids get killed right you're not ready for that (laughs) there's so many stories about why it's bad for women to work and so many stories about bad babysitters the hippie babysitter that like straps the kid in the high chair or microwaves it is another one cook the turkey yeah exactly in the oven yeah apparently that urban legend by the way is international oh really well it actually happened there was actually someone that microwaved a child i found it the other day by accident Well, and there were kids where the mom left the younger kids in charge with the older kids the older kids were like I don't remember exactly. They, you know, they were still young, like, like seven 10 or something. Yeah. And they were playing, were they playing hide and seek or something? And one of the kids did hide in the oven and it got turned on and he did get cooked. No. Yes, it's a real story. Anymore. We're going to do the that mic- one day. <laughs> microwave, I'm sorry, the microwave. Eh. Turkey in the oven, yes. Yes, for real happened. <laughs> for real. He was well done. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. We all have children. So, state that for the fact, for the record, we all have kids. That's why we can make that joke. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, it's okay, I have kids, don't worry. Child services, it's an urban legend, okay? (laughs) We are not advocating for cooking children. (laughs) Only really plump ones. (laughs) Juicy ones. You know, oh my God, I just thought of this. We drove by, I was with my friends the other day, and we drove by this building. I was like, that building's gorgeous, what is it? And they were like, oh. That's the old mental institution. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then they're like, you know, that's why we have so many homeless people is because they closed the institution and didn't give them anywhere to go. Urban legend. And I'm like, is it? Is that an urban legend? It is. Like I said it 
and that happens to actually be real in that case, that then becomes like the standard story of why we have homeless, not because we have economic policies for yeah. <laughs> mortgage crisis. You know, like, sure, yes, maybe at one point during like 1987, that was why that happened. But like why you have homeless today, those people tragically are probably not still alive. Yeah, no, I mean, I thought it was weird that they said that too. And there's no way that every mental institution that closes down just closes down and doesn't. Not anymore. No. Not anymore. Yeah. And anymore it supposedly has- happened in the last like five years or so. No, 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 no. You know, no. and I'm like, I thought that was weird. <laughs> now they're like, like literally, like you could probably be sued if you don't provide proper medical care. That's not to say that the medical care, medical care is adequate. Right. right. Different. You know, you're not dropping them out on the bus in the middle of Times Square. So we want to take a minute and say thank you again to Joshua Zeman for joining us here on the Just a Story urban legend podcast yeah definitely check out his new show i know we will be the killing season on a and e and also we want to invite you back next week because this episode raised some really interesting questions for us right just the nature of legends and those ideas that they can bring up and represent and the idea of putting these legends on trial Right, so we're going to come back next week and take a really in-depth look at legends in the legal system and how they affect real people's lives. But as for this interview, I'm really glad that we had the chance to talk with Josh and figure out once and for all that these legends never, ever come to life. No, that's just a story. Yeah. Just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.